Talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's the Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. G'day, Rocket. How are we going, mate? G'day, BT. I'm going okay. Can't complain. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Excited about this topic. This is probably what it's all about the end game. 2,000 meter racing. Yeah, that's the distance that we race. Right. Yeah. What does that have to do with what we're trying to do? (laughs) Well, sometimes I wonder. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) So today we're going to try and get through um, a little bit of a coach's take. And, 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 you know, I used to be an athlete at, you know, as Josh Dunkley Smith would remind me when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. But you were an athlete. I didn't know that. Once upon a time. Um, You know, what, what a rowing race is like. And then try and get a physiological, um, you know, a science approach to it, and then potentially talk about the implications on training, and maybe challenge a little bit of the dogma around it at the end as well. I like that. Yeah, and it's as we're recording this, we're heading into the Olympics in a couple of weeks, so it's pretty pretty relevant for uh, probably what all of us are thinking about at the moment. So uh, let's get into it. So 2K rowing race, which is the Olympic distance. Now rowing happens over other distances. I think Henley is like 2.3 kilometers, um, which is um, one of the big regattas internationally. We locally in Melbourne, we have an 8.7K long distance race in November called the Head of the Arrow, which is one of the best um, rowing events in, in the Australian rowing calendar. But by and large, it's 2K, which is the race. And I think from an athlete's point of view, sitting in the blocks, um, the first part of the 2K race is the start. And the start is um, probably before the race where all the nerves are happening and you're really anxious. You're sitting forward, sitting ready. The starter you know, says go or there's the beep that goes off and you're off like cut caps. And really, you're trying to get up to speed as quick as possible, get the boat moving. You know, you're trying to do it efficiently by and large. There's certainly been crews that have just tried to get raw speed out of the start. Um, generally speaking, from a, from a technical point of view, you're building up to about 107% of your um, boat speed of, of you know, of the, if you're a top end boat of world's best time would be roughly what you get to. You hit maximum speed about the 100 metre mark uh, and you're trying to hold that maximum speed as efficiently as you can for as long as you can. That will usually last, you know, out to about the 250 or something like that. And then, you know, there's back in the day when I rode, there was the idea of the stride or the transition where you try and move from that star system, which was quite almost like a sprint, just shy of a sprint, into the mid-race pace. And and we'd think about uh, setting a little extra stroke length at that stage. We'd think a lot about breathing. You'd be identifying where you sat in the field and trying to look across and see, maybe have a check-in as to where you were and, and <clears throat> you know, making sure that you could target the right crews at that point. Uh, then through the race, there might be a couple of focus points. So you might target, look, we're going to have a little push at the 1,000 metre mark where you might try and bump the power up um, or bump the stroke rate up a little bit through the 900 you might try and get a jump the traditional one is everyone just has a push at the each of the 250s or something like that along the way if you get adventurous you might try and go five strokes early and get a jump on the field um, and then towards the back end of the race um, you're coming into about 600 meters to go you're starting to think about coming home maybe you've cleared some of the lactic acid that you've built up early in the race and you're starting to feel better you're starting to feel more ready to go and you'd have a bit of a power build and then some steps in the last sort of 400 meters to lead into the finish line and you know the last 100 meters is an all-out sprint where you're you're going flat out uh, and once again you might even get close up to the 100% of your boat speed through that point of the race. So that's that's probably the typical approach to a rowing race um, over 2Ks, you know, that we'd see. So to throw a, a wobbly one at you, how much do you think tactics play a part in 2K racing as opposed to getting from the start line to the end line as quickly as you can? Yeah. versus yeah, having some sort of tactic that yeah. can potentially give you an advantage in some way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the, if you look at every other sport in the world, you know, the, 
the biggest question is why do we go out so hard? Why do you go out at 107% speed? And, and, and that might equal, you know, from the measures that we take, it might be like 150% of your power um, that you, you're capable of generating an average over 2K, you using 150% at the, at the very start. When in a equivalent, say, running race, you sort of, you know, you see them come out and they come out and get straight onto a speed and just sort of settle in and, and watch. And, and the key thing is obviously that we're going backwards. So you can't see what's ahead of you. Mm, in more you can ways only... than one. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't see. So that, that really does dictate you know, the, the, that sense of confidence about where you are in the race, about getting out and getting amongst it out of the start, I suppose is, is um, you know, probably the, the biggest factor with that. Yeah. And with regards, you said, you know, crews will often make a push at various points in the race. And mm. again, what would yeah. be the tactics behind that? Yeah, that's purely about, um, about trying to break spirit at times, I think. And, you know, I say that not necessarily saying that that's the way I think I approach racing these days, but traditionally, historically, you know, at a very basic level, I think that's the way a lot of racing happens is there'll be target points. And there's no doubt that in a rowing race coming into say the 900 meter mark, if you've got a little bit of confidence and you can do a bit of a power play push and, and bump up the rate a couple of points and get, you know, a, a break distance at that point so that they don't have overlap and they cannot see you, then if the crew that you then got a lead on um, doesn't then have that confidence that they're in contact with you anymore, chances are they'll give up or the, their spirit will be defeated and, 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 and you'll be able to row on. So I guess that's the traditional mm. And how, how much do you think that is happening at the, at the elite level, I'd say? Yeah. Do you think you can break the spirit of, of another crew? Uh, the, it still happens, yeah, it definitely still happens. But I think more and more now we're seeing... Um, crews that that uh, that go about just doing their own business, and and I think, look, it's very easy to look at the crews that are winning and say, oh, you know, they seem to have their acts together. But if we look right now, this point in time, the the classic example would be um, Eric Murray and Hamish Bond, the, that Kiwi men's pair. You know, they seem to be very happy to get out and onto a speed and um, confident and comfortable with other crews rowing away from them, maybe even rowing a decent distance away from them, but confident in the knowledge that they have the average boat speed to row through in the middle of the mm. race. Uh, and they appear to seemingly go a lot faster than everyone else, but I think, you know, everyone realises looking at their splits, but they just hold speed, you know, yeah, change exactly. their speed very little. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, there's different tactics for different crews and different psychology and where you are on the performance spectrum. And even physiologically, there can be different ways to go about it depending on your strengths or weaknesses. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's that old, you know, Mm. discussion of well do you get to the from the start to the end as quickly as you possibly can and yep. if you win you win and if you don't you don't yeah or is that well you know maybe there's some other things that we need to do um to give us a better chance of success and tactically i think we need to challenge some of that in the discussion today and I, I, I don't think in our previous podcast we we talked about jeff simon who's a performance psychologist we work with um on the national team and what, I remember working with him when we were working in, a, in an eight once and, and we're talking about uh, the Cox and talking about the call that, that the Cox was making and references to other crews. And he really quizzed and said, well, why does it matter? I mean, they're not in your lane. They're not obstructing you. They have no influence over you realistically. Your lane is your lane and you can get from the start to the finish as fast as you can. Uh, I suppose that might ignore the fact that there is an external motivation that comes into sport. There's no doubt about it. We see it every day, you know. Um, in AFL, you know, a player does an inspirational smother and the whole team lifts and runs an extra yard. So there is a factor there um, motivationally that's, it's, sure, it's hard to measure, but maybe we overemphasize that um, as athletes and coaches historically. And look, I mean, on the scientific side, there is evidence showing that competition can enhance performance yeah so um yeah I, th I think certainly it's not a purely the placebo effect yeah. is that from uh, professor lacebo yeah is that right? I, I learned that one yeah. from uh, professor lacebo of Very france good. he's yeah. a good one so in terms of the physiology then if we're if we're we're getting down and, and dirty with it you know, I've sort of said I think there are three three parts essentially to the race: the start, the middle, and the finish. 
which Funny is that. <laughs> that's revolutionary. Hang on, um, have you got a pen? I just want to write that down. <laughs> I thought you had a photographic memory. Um, could you just talk us through a little bit out of um, you know what's happening at a, at a very um, you know scientific level? You know that's that sort of point in time. You know, go through the science of the uh, the points. Why is it so? Why is it so? Well, you speak about the all-out start, so to speak, and some yep. people might say, well. Why do you need to get out that fast? And you've sort of identified well, tactically why it might make. No rowing bit. people ever say that, really. No, of course Very not. Very few. Rowing no, I'm talking about oh. people. Oh, there are people outside yeah. rowing. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so most people, especially you know, coming new into the sport and and talking to other sports scientists and other people who work in other sports, they do often ask that question: Why do you need to go out so hard? But Outside of the tactical or the psychological idea of getting out in front and, and so on and being able to see the rest of the crews, there is a physiological benefit to an all-out start. So there has been some, uh, you know, a fair bit of research done, mostly in cycling, mm. uh, as most of the research generally is, but um, showing that an all-out start for events, you know, that are in that middle distance range, so, you know, three to six sort of minutes range, um, can enhance the performance. And so the idea behind why that happens is that going out all, all out, it basically increases your VO2 kinetics early. So how quickly your oxidative system essentially kicks in, kicks into gear. Yep. So to go out fast, it switches that system on faster. Right. Uh, and essentially the, the idea, to, to sort of simplify it, I guess, the idea is that then your anaerobic work capacity... Uh, that contributes to the race. You know, the theory is that that's a finite amount. You know, mm. Some argument around whether or not that's true, but um, really, you know, they say you, once you, you start burning matches, you know, it's going to whittle down. So this is in reference to the anaerobic energy system. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So you've got this many matches. Exactly. So measure that out. Yeah. So the, the theory is that if the oxygen system switches on early, you've got more matches to use, either to spread. It throughout the middle of the race or to, for your wind home. So mm. certainly there is some good evidence showing that an all-out start is um, can be optimal for performance over, over a distance of you know 2,000 metres duration. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, even though some people might argue that it's you know, mm. getting out that fast is a little bit ridiculous, there is some merit to it from the physical point of view. So I'm going to talk in terms of... Um heavyweight women because that's what I've had most experience with when normally we talk about heavyweight males and there's some men in rowing that believe that's the only part of the sport that exists but from a power output point of view you know we, we use the peach system power units have measured um, and calibrated very differently across the world but I think people are interested in those sort of numbers you know a 72 kilo heavyweight woman at an elite level she's going to generate around about 280 to 300 watts on average over a 2k if they're going to do really pretty well i think and obviously if the efficiency of stroke has a factor in how fast they go but it's generally in that sort of ballpark you're always going to have to go over that at the start to build the boat speed to get it up to a certain speed it's always going to be in excess of um, 300 watts if that's your average you're always going to go have to go out but what we have seen is athletes that go at like 450 watts in the first sort of 40 seconds of a race, which is obviously very high, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's very high and, and certainly nothing comes for free, really, so. Now, is that true? Because the old adage is, you know, you get 15 strokes for free out of the start. Is that actually true? Well, it's not, it's not entirely true. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of truth behind it, but ultimately it's not entirely true. Yeah, so what, uh, what are we talking about there, the ATP, CP system? Right, so the theory is that you have a certain amount of ATP stored in your muscle and you just break that down immediately mm. and without having to regenerate it. So therefore, it's kind of free, free money to play with, so to speak. Yep. Um, however, you know, there are lots of things that go on inside the muscle during high-intensity exercise that cause... Fatigue, fatigue or they generate yeah. fatigue so you know the theory is the atp cp system doesn't result in lactate buildup and so on and so forth but there's other mm. things that are going on um you know centrally also um you know inorganic phosphate starts accumulating amp and atp and a whole bunch of different no! sorts of things that 
Oh yeah, that's heavy. Do you want? Should I carry on? Or <laughs> you want more of that? Is that what he meant? So there's ancillary or collateral damage that happens. Yes, you you can access a certain amount of this free energy from your ATP CP system, which realistically is only like twelve to. 17 seconds anyway, isn't it? Oh, it's probably even less than it's starting to show now, yeah. So that's a small thing, but, but small that's, thing. that's relevant potentially for overcoming the initial inertia out of the blocks. But if you push into that too long, there's still, it's not exclusively ATP, CP. There is still anaerobic energy um, or met metabolism going on, anaerobic metabolism at that time and overdoing the odds there there's collateral damage that can happen yeah absolutely and, and as you said the longer you hold on for that the mm. start quote unquote and you know i've heard crews talk about the, a 250 start I'm yeah like, oh does, does the start lot last the whole 250 yeah um and you know certainly you know you're going to pay a big cost for that great so Let's say we get out and we, we do tradition. We'll follow the traditional model as we work through the physiology, which is get out pretty hard and you know hold hold a high speed. You know hit the two fifty still at a hundred percent boat speed, for example, and then transition that down to say ninety seven percent as you're going through the five hundred and might settle at ninety six in the middle, something like that. Um, what's going on physiologically through there? So physiologically, it's Really, it's a it's a mess. It's a whole bunch of different <laughs> things going on um, that ultimately your body is trying to fight against. Yep. So, I mean, really, what in any form of exercise that you do, why can't you do it at a hundred percent the whole time? So, if you can, if your maximum sprinting speed is thirty kilometers an hour, why can't you run a marathon at thirty kilometers an hour? So. Well, I would guess that um, you would very quickly burn up your anaerobic energy system and light all your matches yeah and that you know that's a big part of it but there's lots of other different things that are going on and, and essentially that's what fatigue is there's yeah. so many different things that are causing fatigue in them in the body from you know central central fatigue yep. <clears throat> you know from your central nervous system that you know purposely you know your 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 brain and your spinal cord will purposely reduce the amount of um of motor output occurring because it's thinks it's in danger yep. of killing itself essentially um you know, there's things going on within the muscle cell. Um, there's obviously things going on, you know, at the um, neuromuscular level. There's psychological factors saying mm. this hurts. I want to slow down. So, yep. it's 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 one big mess, really. Um, but and the whole reason we train is to make our bodies more fatigue resistant. Yep. So essentially, you're trying to as you're coming through the race, you're trying to mitigate fatigue. Mm. So all of those little things, you know quite big things that are occurring as the race progresses are escalating and escalating and escalating and you're trying to do your best from a you know physiological and from a mental point of view mm. to overcome those things so right. there's things like being able to buffer hydrogen ions for example um, and you know maintaining you know you, your muscle cells need to keep on turning on and contracting so you know what's happening at the neuromuscular level to make sure that you know the signals are going to the muscle to mm. continue to turn them on to produce force yep. um, and so that's really I mean that's what you're dealing with throughout the course of a 2000 meter race and, mm. and if you chose rowing as a sport well, good luck to you because yeah. it's it's very painful <laughs> it's a tough sport isn't it because it is uh, we've said a few times it's that really true vo2 sport you're at, it's a race that's at vo2 it really is a, it, it's a it's a good blend of um, you know maximal aerobic capacity but also a sport where it's it's short enough that you have to have very good anaerobic capacity too. And, mm. and you know, you've told me stories about how you know a, a women's pair has been able to get their split down to you know unbelievable one twenty eight. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to be fast, and, and look, I've heard stories of marathon runners that what they can do for mm. a four hundred. You know, if you want to run at twenty kilometers an hour for two hours, I mean, what do you need to be able to do just for a four hundred meters? Yeah. So. Um, you know, you need raw speed, mm. uh, and it's at a very high intensity. And, mm. You know, anaerobic capacity needs to be extremely high, and it's short enough to be high intensity. Sorry about that, folks. We had a fire alarm. Anyway, we'll carry on. So rowing is short enough that it's almost a sprint, and long enough that it's quite aerobic in nature. And yeah, the combination of those two equals very, very painful. Mm. All right. Not that I would know, but. I've watched. <laughs> well, we can put you through a 2K ergo if you like. It's a good, it's a good, um, you know, 
simulation for a 2k race if you want to experience it uh, a lot of athletes have asked why i haven't mm, done it yet i've managed yeah. to avoid it for two years yeah and look at there's not very many um hit outs where you see someone you know 30 minutes later and they're still not in control of their themselves <laughs> after doing the number on themselves but yeah it's it's uh well that's why we love our sport <laughs> it's wild of watching it <clears throat> so we got out of start we've we've um hit up our ATP CP for a little bit, but we've also been fairly anaerobic and we've burned some of our matches. And you said, you know, we've accumulated hydrogen ions, which is generally, um, you know, referred to as lactic acid. Um, and that, that lovely feeling of burn that pulls, particularly in rowing in the glutes a lot of the time. And obviously people get it in all sorts of different places. I used to get it in my, like, I feel like I was getting in my teeth and my eyes when at that point it was a horrible, horrible feeling. Um, and so through the middle of the race, you're trying to hold an efficient speed, but at the same time, you're also trying to deal with the damage done out of the start, essentially. Exactly right. And I mean, what I've heard, coaches say to me is like you know in the mid-race pace it's about you know coming back down and you know lactate drops and this that and the other yeah. and i mean really the, the secret is it's it's just everything's accumulating the whole time yeah so i mean certainly you know you can drop down the intensity from the start yeah in order to get through the bulk of the race and you'll need to do that but i mean you, you're kind of fooling yourself to think that you're actually um you're putting yourself in, in a better position than, than yeah. you were almost. So, um, yeah, so, it's still... And the lactate one as well. I mean, it's an energy source. It can yes, be used as an energy source. it is an energy, an energy source, source yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's a big um, misconception about lactate and lactic acid. And uh, funny, a, a university lecturer told me one time, it's the sports science students come in, in year one, day one, and they, they say to them, all right, students, what causes fatigue? And everybody puts up their hand, yes... Uh, lactic acid okay three years later when they finish the course they ask the same question all right students what causes fatigue i don't know that's progress <laughs> <laughs> there you go that's that's uh that's a good insight so we're, we're we're dealing with the uh perceived impacts of the hydrogen ions of the lactic acid where hopefully we've established a good rhythm and we can deal with lactic lactic acid through breathing, really, don't we? Can't we? we can blow it off through breathing. Yeah, so breathing, you know, basically hyperventilating, so to speak, mm. is the way the body's natural way to to get the buffering yep. um, system occurring. So yeah, in rowing, particularly rowing, I think breathing is really important. In a lot of sports, you sort of just naturally breathe, and, and mm. ventilation per se is generally not a limiting factor. Yep. But if you took running or cycling as the sort of the general um, rule, I mean, you, you sort of don't breathe necessarily in stride, in rhythm, in, with in, your, in rhythm with yeah. your with your cadence, so to speak. So you can kind of breathe when you need when to. you need to, as mm. you want to, without thinking about it. But obviously, in rowing, you kind of need to breathe mm. in the rhythm of the stroke. Yeah. So learning to do that properly is actually quite important and, and, yeah. and very useful it's a big consideration in training and uh, i think in my observation i think it's an area of opportunity in rowing for for further gains yeah I, I specifically agree. targeting helping people learn how to breathe it's almost like accidental that people get there not it's not accidental a lot of the training that has evolved to be successful over time part of what that does is it teaches people how to breathe effectively in the rhythm of the rowing but I think it could be done at a much more strategic level. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I think we've seen some some effects of that. Yeah, yeah, cool. So if I want to go for a push, what happens when I go for a push? I put in a 15-strike a, a effort. Um, yeah, this is, my, this is where I've had many a fun, uh, let's not call them argument, discussion mm -hmm. <laughs> with yep. coaches. Um, so the way I think of it, especially through the mid-race, mid is especially in a sport like rowing where you need to accelerate the boat through water, through a heavy mm. resistance, um, any push, so to speak, uh, requires a big increase in, in, in power output. Yeah. So uh, in order to get the, the boat moving faster than it currently is, you, essentially the way I think of it is it's physiologically inefficient. Yeah. So the best way I, I can sort of describe it is as you're ticking along through the course of the race, 
you're putting in a dollar worth of power and you're getting a dollar worth of speed. Mm. Dollar worth of power, dollar worth of speed, and you're ticking along throughout the race. Now, if you want to go and get yourself a dollar and 10 cents worth of speed, you might have to put in a dollar 50 mm. worth of power. So immediately you've just cost yourself 40 cents that you might be able to use later on in the race. Mm. So, um, you know, while obviously, obviously there can be a tactical advantage to that, you know, the pure sort mm. of physiologist in me thinks, well, I just want to get to the end line as quick as I can. And if I do that, I'll either win or I won't, but I'll be able to live with the result. And it, the best way to do with that, to do that physiologically, is um, to maintain a really yeah. nice even. Yeah, suppose in your metaphor, you'd be saying rather than going from 100, and, uh, 100 uh, cents worth to 150, you'd be going, you'd be trying to sit at 104 the whole time and Ex spread yeah. that investment. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And from a physiological point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's, there's lots of reasons why that can't happen perfectly. You might get mm. a gust of wind or, you know, the thing is you, you never really know how long yeah. the race will take because conditions will dictate the length or the duration of the race. So sometimes you, you might have a little bit of juice left that yeah. you might not have thought because you got to the end line faster than you, than you thought because it was a tailwind or whatever it might be, warm water and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think the crews, at, at least in the analysis I've done on winning crews in all of the World Cups and World Championships in this Olympic cycle, mm. the crews that have the least deviation in speed between their splits are generally the crews that win. Yeah, yeah. And I think, logically, I think we know that, but it's amazing how we get hijacked by you know, trying to find a, a secret way. Now, one interesting thing, and I, I give you the example of where this can be a bit of an exception to the rule, and it was at a very early World Cup, and it was, in fact, the first World Cup of this Olympic cycle. So, you know, people are turning up, you know, great athletes were turning up, Olympic champions from the year before, but they're probably at various stages of their... Um, reintroduction back into rowing so we recognize it's not a, a, a perfect example but i was looking after a very young crew from australia um in the women's eight and you know none of the girls in that boat had had really any experience we had a couple that had sort of snuck into the back of the eight the year before you know we had a good coxswain with some experience from a couple of olympic campaigns but there were no returning medal winners or anything like that. And there were some that had only ever done under 23s. And one of the things we did, because we recognized we needed them to get some confidence racing internationally early in the, in the, in the um, year that year. And we thought, you know, the Americans who had been undefeated for six years or something at that stage, and the, the Brits would be a little bit down on form. So we actually targeted a, a, a specific piece of work, we called it a power play, where they basically went up, you know, three or four points of rate and a quite a significant power increase for 20 strokes. And it was something we practiced in training occasionally to, to, to see how they could do it as efficiently as possible and then recover and go on. So if we we're doing a 10 minute pace at 28, we would throw it up to 38 for 20 strokes and then come back down and see, how they could do it. And in the race, in the final, the Aussie girls had gotten out, young and experienced girls, and they had a look on the field. And through the thousand, or coming into around about thousand meter mark, you know, the experience, world and Olympic champions were surging back down on them. And, and understandably, um, I think most people thought, well, here we go, they're gonna row through. And at that stage, the Coxon pushed the button on the power play. And the Aussie girls didn't at that point break away from the Americans, but they held onto their position for long enough that they then believed they could potentially hold it. And I think the Americans probably thought, maybe we're not gonna get this one at this point or whatever it was. And for that particular race, that strategy worked, but it never worked again, <laughs> right. you know, but it worked for that thing. So it, there's, there's room for it at certain times. You know, we have the one-off hit-outs and Kings and Queens Cups and those sort of things. Those sort of races, deliberate, specific tactics like that might actually work because you throw the other person off their game. Um, if they were just worried about their own lane purely and simply, then it wouldn't affect them at all. Mm. But there is potentially the opportunity to use it like that. Yeah, and I think and that's a really good example. And what you touched on there is something I think is left unforgotten in that what you said was that we practice it in training. Yeah. So, 
and that's sort of one thing I, you know, I look at a, a regular sort of profile and you hear certain coaches or athletes talk about, oh, it's all about getting out fast. Mm. You got to get out fast and control the race and then, you know, you sort of sit through the meal and then you got to come home, the wine to the line, you know, really important. And then you might look at the way that crew trains and they don't do really that much training that targets the start and they may not do that much training that targets the wine to the line. Mm. They might do lots of long Ks and lots of, which ultimately probably is targeting the middle of the race more. So I think if you've got a strategy, I think you need to train specifically for that strategy. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, you can have a strategy, not train, not just the mental side of it, the physical side of that strategy. Mm. That's what they did was different physically than had they raced it a different way. So yeah. you need to build a certain capacity to be able to, to do that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So does the same sort of approach work for the for the wine to the line, what, what we would traditionally call the steps in the wine to the line? Would you say you'd be better off spending 104 cents the whole way through and having nothing, you know, to come to the line? Well, I think my sort of view on it, uh, rightly or wrongly, I'm not necessarily 100% certain on this, but my view is if you had a, had a robot, you would get it up to speed, it would build some momentum, it would settle down, and it would just like tick away, and then it'd, the last stroke it would cross the line, and it wouldn't be able to take another stroke yep. after that. Uh, and that would be the fastest way to get from start to finish. Mm. But, you know, unfortunately they're not robots, although yep. sometimes we like to treat them as that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I've done you know, bits of analysis here and there on not just rowing but some other sports too, and it's not necessarily the crew that comes home the fastest that wins. Mm. So for me, like the way I look at it, the middle thousand or, or even if you like the middle 1500 yep. is where the race is won and lost. So, um, mm. you know, you see the finish line or in rowing, you don't see the finish line, you sense the finish line mm. and you, you naturally, you go for it. You know, there's that mm. little bit of extra left in the tank that you, you you've been holding into. back that you can tap into. Mm. And, um, you know, and you go for the line, and that's perfectly natural. And I think if you've nailed the race really, really well, just from the physiological side, you'd do everything you can to increase the speed, and it'd barely change. Yeah. And from that, I think in that situation, you've distributed your energy or your power very, very efficiently. So I think yeah. if you come roaring home in the last 250 meters, I think that you probably could have completed the whole 2,000 meters faster. Yeah, um, and certainly again in all of the analysis on the actual crews competing at the highest level, we see that it's not usually the crews that finish the fastest that actually win. Mm. No, very rarely. Often they medal. Yeah, they often medal. Mm. And in a lot of the analysis I looked at, it, the crews that finish silver or or bronze will have the fastest mm. final five hundred, and yeah. the winning crew will have maybe the second or the third fastest final yeah, five hundred. Yeah. yeah. I think that's very common in, in international rowing, certainly. So we, we, we possibly look at, um, you know, coming out, you know, it, it's going to be, there's going to be a higher requirement for speed out of the start. We understand it, a requirement for power and effort, and there's going to be some physiological um, outcome for that. But then by and large, you're looking to try and get the most efficient stroke that you can then hold all the way to the very last stroke, and that's the most efficient way of doing a 2K race from a physiological point of view. Yes, I would think so, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. I'm just interested quickly on buffering, because you mentioned that before. Um, so na obviously, naturally, the body buffers, and it has processes to do that, and you can assist that um, in training, and you can assist that in um, you know, the way you breathe and that sort of stuff through the race. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that works? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, certainly in terms of, well, yeah, as we said before, the, the body's natural way of, of buffering, so to speak, is to, is to increase ventilation. So mm -hmm. that's sort of one of the main ways that um, the hydrogen ions can sort of be broken down, so to speak. Um, but also the, what's been shown to probably be the most effective form of um, training to enhance your buffering capacity is high intensity training. Right. So, um, you know, training where basically, you know, blood lactate and hydrogen ions are accumulating dramatically mm. in the body, it, 
it sends the signal to the body to be able to make the adaptations required to be able to get those processes. So it not just improves your psychological resilience to the feeling of the of being in you know Dr Lactate's you know changing room, but <laughs> it also improves your body's physiological abilities to deal with that and use it for a um, uh, a better outcome for a um, yeah exactly uh, right okay. yep. very good um, well I think we've sort of covered the, the main points of the race there uh, perhaps what might be interesting is just to quickly touch on going through those points and talk about the type of training that's really relevant for those parts of the race so from a start point of view getting out of the blocks I suppose you know the ability to generate um, force is going to be pretty important at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Force, force and power, just raw force and power, yep. um, and obviously moving efficiently yep. to get the boat up to speed. So what are we talking about there? That, that's, you know, power is the amount of force you can generate over the time that you, you're able to generate it for. So it factors in both of those things. So you can generate a lot of force quickly. That's a lot of power. So that sort of training is that explosive kind of training. Yeah, right. And that's can be done in a number of ways. It's you know the obvious thing that you might think of is your, your resistance weight based gym mm -hmm. training gym that, training, that yep. can help with that. Um, and, so you that's know, the strength side. The strength side. Yeah. Yep. And, and and I mean a lot of that is also teaching your body to recruit a large amount of muscle mass to be able to actually mm -hmm. generate the force. So yep. it's it's um, getting you know in the gym and increasing your um, ability to um, you know, generate force yep. at a maximal level by not just by increasing the force that your body is able to produce from a muscular level, but also mm. in recruiting yep. um, the mass required to do that. And often people talk about power training in rowing on the water. They talk about power strokes. You know, they talk about resistance training where you might put a bungee or you might get one of the row fit um, tubes that Johnny Dreesen makes or, you know, I've created a whole lot of fancy things that we tow out the back for that sort of resistance load. But that's not really power training, is it? Well, no, not exactly. You know, if you were to look at the power, the power numbers Number. themselves are probably... They are very similar. We, we have done that. Like we've obviously with the peach system, we've looked at it, and it's no different basically to the equivalent stroke rate um, rowing normally. There's very little difference in mm. power. Yeah, and I, and I think you know you can compare it to cycling if mm. you're not so familiar with rowing. In that riding up a hill, the power output might be the same, but the cadence is mm. quite slow, yep. and therefore the force side. Of that equation has to increase so yep. um you know it basically it turns into you know what we've thrown around the term of time under tension mm. training so ultimately it's the power may not be the same it's not necessarily a more powerful stroke yeah but the time that that um you know the muscles and so on are under tension yeah uh, is is longer essentially yeah. and i reckon we'll have a we'll have a chat about power strokes in a future episode i reckon because there's a lot to, to talk about there in terms of time under tension and the, the technical advantages of training like that, but also some of the stuff that we're learning physiologically about resistance training as well. Mm, sure. So mid-race, we're, we're up and about. We've, we've generated some lactic acid through getting up to the start and out of the blocks. We're dealing with that uh, efficiently. What's going on physiologically through mid-race? Yeah, we're just as we sort of touched on before, it's just a whole cascade of uh, of signals firing mm -hmm. left, right, and centre, trying to get you to slow down. So the training that you're doing there is dealing with that, but it's also very aerobic, isn't it? At that point in time. Yeah, exactly right. So essentially, what what endurance training is, it's teaching your body to deal with fatigue. Yeah. And so it's almost sort of like mitigating fatigue, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So mitigating the reduction in power and speed that you're going to experience um, due to all of those things that cause yeah, yeah. fatigue. So, um, you know, teaching your body to become more efficient aerobically in the way it uses energy and breaks down energy. Um, you know, so therefore, big long, that's why we do big long 20, yeah. 25 kilometer paddles to build up that system. 
It's why we do threshold training um, to be able to teach our body how to cope and, and create the adaptations within the muscle cells that can deal with those sort of things. You know, yeah. Simple things like, as you're generating lactic acid, how does the lactate make its way from the muscle and into the blood? Mm. You need to generate the different types of shuttles, they call them, to be able to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. And so those type of trainings is important for that. Yeah, and then right. again, we go into the higher intensity VO2 max type training, which um, you know gives you the ability to hold your VO2 max at a high power. Mm. Um, also gives you those sort of buffering um, adaptations that you can get. Um, and also when we talk about that super maximal type of training, like mm. you know the 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off at above VO2 max power, what we know about those sessions is that they create changes in what's called the sodium potassium pump subunits mm. that allow your body to maintain, or the muscle cells to maintain cell excitability. The cells are more excitable, they'll contract. If they're not, they won't. Right. And then you go slower. Bloody hell, that's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> See, rowing, it's a complicated sport. Yeah, it's very complicated. Lucky we have you. So, but, well, that's what I try and say. I think one of the, um, and we have touched on this a couple of times in different episodes, one of the things about the mid-race, um, just like every part of the race, is it's, there's a technical element to it as well. And I think athletes that can spend as much time in that mid-race is a distinct advantage in the confidence of being able to sit there. So say if you're in the um, you know, women's pair and you need to sit at 146 through the middle of the race, 145, 146, if you don't spend a lot of time in there in training, you're probably not going to have the same confidence and clarity around what that rhythm feels like. So I think creating opportunity to train, not only the long kilometers to build the volume into, um, into the aerobic development of the physiology, but you also need to build the body's um, sense of um, being accustomed to working exactly in that rhythm. And that's where I think some of the interval training is very useful as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the number of athletes that have said to me how much confidence they get from doing those type of training yeah. sessions just because, you know, A, they've put themselves in that, you know, hurt locker, so to speak, mm. so they're not as scared of it when they come to racing and it doesn't come up and surprise them. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, yeah, it just gives them the, the confidence in that rhythm and the ability to, to maintain that force efficiently throughout the course of the race. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... I think the final part of it is obviously technical efficiency and there's, there's a, you see a whole lot of different boats that seemingly are going backwards in the middle of the race because they're not running their boat efficiently at that stage and, and I think a lot of the base training is about grooving that, is about you know, looking after the run of the stern and, and I think it's really important that when athletes are training and they're doing their 24k steady state rows you know, every second day or whatever it is um, that there is a real link to the 2K performance, and that is learn to look after your boat, look after the shell, look after the system there, run the boat, feel you know, the, the draw of the boat under the heels as you're coming forward, learn to pick it just before the stern drops at the catch and, and that sort of thing. And there's quite a bit, and that's the hardest thing in our sport to measure, is that efficiency mm. of boat run, I think. Yeah, absolutely, and it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's something that is of ultimate importance, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the wind to the line again, obviously we're back up to high power and, and so clearly probably the most important thing from a physio physical point of view when you're training that is to actually spend time up at speed. And I think you've mentioned that before that you know, if, you, if you don't ever spend any time at speed and at that higher stroke rate as you're coming to the line, how can you expect to do it in a race? Exactly right. And, and not only that, but how can you expect it? to do it at the end of a race when you've already mm. just say you've raced 1800 meters yeah. and now you're very, very tired. Mm. So, um, you know, oftentimes you might see crews that do some of that type of training, but they mm. do it in a state where they're completely fresh. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you know, while there's certainly merit to doing that, uh, I think you also need to do that type of training in a situation where there has been some fatigue already generated. Yeah. And you know you need to teach your body to, to hit those speeds when it's already quite tired. Yep. Um, and in a situation where all those fatiguing um, signals are occurring. So 
Mm. Um, yeah, I think that has to be part of your training program. Yeah. If that's part of your, 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 your race strategy. And naturally you do, you might do, you know, your thousand meter pieces and you might do three or four in a session. The last one you might do with a step to the line. And that's an obvious way of practicing it. A couple of creative ways that we've done in the past is if we've done long power stroke session, we might have six minutes with the tube. You create a little way of being able to pull a lever and drop the tube off. So you lose the resistance and take off for 40 seconds or something at the end and, and practice that. I think that's that's a really good way. You know, I did ha you know have the fortune of of coaching a crew who proved to you know be a very good finisher when it counted in London, and um, you know they probably you know found themselves a little bit too far back in the field in the first half of the race, not quite getting the rhythm right in the head breeze. But in talking to to both of the athletes in that boat, you know, after the race, I think everyone was you know pretty impressed with their step to the line, and we practiced it in training, no doubt. But I think both of them said that the only thing they thought about was staying clean and moving together. And you know, the fact that they were at 42 or whatever the stroke rate was, that was, that was just happening. Mm. So I think one of the big, biggest things about finishing is staying, moving exactly together. If you can keep focused on that, you, know, you can go well. And, and training to, towards that end, I think is really critical. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing that is often it's really sort of glamorized when you're watching on TV and you're mm. looking at, you know, watching the Olympics and you got all the commentary and they're saying, oh, the athletes are just digging deep here. And it's, yeah, but yeah. oftentimes when you speak to athletes who have performed at the highest level, they're not thinking that at all. No. They're thinking about a process. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a process is something that you practice every single day. Yeah. So that's not surprising to hear yeah, at yeah. all. Yep. Yep. Uh, so it's, uh, it's probably the most important part of the sport, sticking mm. together. Well, Rodney, we've been through the 2K. We've been through, you know, what traditionally happens and, and we've challenged a little bit of it at the moment. So your, your challenge to the dogma of, of racing, number one would be around the pacing. Yeah. The confidence, <clears throat> you, your robot athlete that could maybe generate a little bit and there's some physiological benefit as you've outlined to starting off with a little bit of a power spike but maybe not over the top and then basically investing exactly the same amount into every stroke as efficiently as possible same stroke all the way to the finish line yeah or, or as close as you can to do mm. that and i think there's as we said there's a number of problems with achieving that perfectly all the time but also it's it's the worst way to do the race yeah because it's the hardest way to do the race mm. so if you're leaving a little bit left in the tank all the way through so you can come roaring home it's the middle of the race is a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and then, you know, it always feels good coming home fast, mm. but it feels better winning. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I've had discussions with some athletes about this and sort of said, look, you can try this on the ergo. It's a lot easier to try on the mm. ergo. And, um, you know, it'll probably be worse. It'll probably feel a lot worse. And you'll, when you do try to come home in that last 200 meters, you'll be doing everything you can yeah. to get, get the power up and it'll probably just stay the same. Um, and yeah, you'll get off there and you'll feel a lot worse for it, but mm. you'll finish faster. Yeah, yeah. And I think, look, this is no surprise to anyone that's um, you know involved in really successful high-end crews because this is exactly the way you try and work towards it. But it's 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 important to keep challenging it because there's still a there's still a strong feeling around you know the need to um, come out, drop down a bit, and then have something to come home with. And the international examples, you know. Are, are, immediate you know obviously i think in both men's and women's pairs you have crews that have extraordinarily good mid-race speed apparently but what you would say probably is what they what they have is very little difference between their top end and low end speed through the race their peak and their trough is very small mm, much less deviation in, mm. yeah and um you know the the American women's aid, I think, has been so successful is, is probably exactly the same. Now, the, the criticism is you quite often hear, oh, they, they get pushed back up on the, um, um, you know, the British girls in the pair uh, recently. And, and, you know, that has happened to the, to the guys in, in the men's pair. It's happened to the girls in the American women's aid. But that they've timed their run exactly the way they needed to. Exactly. And a big part of it is the confidence. Mm. So... You know, the, the athletes and the crews that do the best job of it are the ones that have the most confidence in their ability. Yeah. And so, you know, Eric and Hamish, they can sit through the first 500 in sixth place, 
mm. knowing it's okay, we'll get them. Yeah, yeah. We'll chew them down because we know we can go faster through the middle than anybody else can can, mm. can maintain. So, um, and you know, I've worked with other athletes before that just have that are happy to be last at the two fifty. Yeah, knowing they've got the rest of the race to to plow them down. Um, you know, and that's their strategy. So, and that somebody else might be spending too many bickies and burning too many matches in order to get mm. the jump on them. So, um, and again, it's. One thing that I found really interesting looking at all the racing data from this cycle is that what came up time and time again was that the crews that won their second 500 and their third 500 were not different from one another or yeah, very, yeah, very similar. Yeah. Whereas almost every single other crew from silver medal down, their third 500 would be slower than their second mm. in order to allow their last 500 to become faster. So, and again, it's... It's, they're basically they're trying to save money to be mm. able to spend it later on, but they're almost you know, saving too much and conserving too much. And it's interesting that you say it's because they're trying to save, because I think sometimes it's because they've spent too much early. And yeah, and it certainly could be that as that. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's certainly a combination of both. So we got to the finish of the race. You know, I might be, if I was pretty hardcore, in the high teens in terms of lactate, you know, usually a little bit less on the water than you would, managed on the ergo mm -hmm. but you know for those that aren't familiar with that in rowing um and from other sports like it, it you end up pretty high in terms of lactate at the end of the race don't mm -hmm. you yeah. yeah yep absolutely and yeah as you said it, it i think due to all the other factors involved in rowing a boat mm. you can't put the same amount of energy as you can on the ergo, on the ergo yeah. so yeah we do we often see higher numbers on the ergo than in the boat yeah yeah and we probably then need to go back to the start pretty much um, to finish this off, which is the warm up. So, if you're going through that, you know, that pretty high, very much, let's just say the average of the race is VO2, but you also need a spring to get out of the blocks, what is critical in the warm up? Right. So, I mean, the first thing that's important in the warm up is I mean, I've asked people before, why do you warm up? And, and often sometimes they don't really have an answer. But the first reason mm -hmm. is to literally warm up. So, a big part of it is increasing your um, body temperature and your muscle temperature. Um, yeah. That's certainly part of it. Um, and we know that you know you can generate more forces with higher muscle temperatures and things like that. Um, but as you alluded to before, you're at that VO2 max intensity. And as we spoke about earlier with the, um, the VO2 um, increasing. With a, a more quickly with a with a fast start, um, elevating your VO2, your baseline VO2 during the warm up is also very important because yeah. that can then assist um, in the race as well. Yep. Uh, and also you you're sort of just essentially priming the system. Yep. So you know you're switching on, you know the central nervous system that's going to be you know firing rapidly during during the race. You know neuromuscular things. Um, you know, a lot of the enzymes that are that are you know transporting mm. things within and without of the muscle cells and so on and so forth that are helping you generate and regenerate energy essentially. Yep. Essentially, you're kind of like turning on the light switch and waking them all up so mm. that they can get on with the job. So yep. um, you don't have to do that in the race; they're already ready to fire. So I mean that simplifies it a fair bit. But that, I mean that's probably a reason why a warm up and doing warm ups that involve intensity as well as just paddling around. Yeah. Is important. So what is really interesting in, in sort of challenging the, the whole um, tradition around warm-ups is I think back in 2004 when we first started using GPSs on our boat, they, uh, Tony Rice measured, who's the physiologist of the AIS, he measured the amount of time, moving time and time doing things in the Olympic year that year. And it was, I think there was like 12 minutes of active time in a 40-minute warm-up for, for a, one of our uh, gold medal winning boats. Wow. And and that that's when we started, you know, going, well, okay, clearly that's not right. We looked at what they um, they do for individual time trial on the bike where they might do several fairly long threshold hit-outs, like 10 to 15-minute hit-outs before they even start. And rowers were like, oh, easy, oh, come on, man. I can't do that much. I've got a race coming up. But I think part of the, one of the misconceptions is, A, that you can burn energy that you're going to need for the race now the race is only six minutes long you're always going to have the energy stores it ain't a marathon you're not going to run out of energy <laughs> exactly right 
but that's a pretty big misconception, I reckon, at, at, um, particularly with younger athletes as they're going through, but certainly even at the high end, even as recent as 10 years ago, that was something we were still trying to help convince people of. Mm. Yeah, well, as you said, certainly that you're not going to run out of energy in, mm. in six or seven minutes. And the other one is that if you generate lactic acid, that you're doing damage that you won't recover from. But, but clearly, you know, generating lactic acid, uh, you know, turning all those switches on, as you say, priming the system, provided you can clear it to a degree before you get onto the line, is, is pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really, firstly, when you're dealing with athletes at the, at the top end of the spectrum, they're very fit, mm. obviously, and it, you know, especially coming into the pinnacle event, you're hopefully the fittest you've just about ever been in your life. So you know, you're used to doing 40, 45 minutes worth of threshold training a couple of times a week. Yeah. You know, what's three minutes here yeah, or four yeah. minutes there, you know, an hour before your race? Mm. You know, you're going to recover from that in a blink of an eye, essentially. So obviously, as you come down the, the progression of an athlete's um, you know, abilities, probably less might be a little bit better for, for younger athletes. But you know, as long as you're able to not go over the top, mm. um, and I think it's for different athletes, it'll be different things. You know, different athletes will need a bit longer warm ups, others will need shorter warm ups, yep. um, and varying levels of the intensities. Um, but yeah, it's getting that balance right of mm. warming up enough so that you've primed the system, and then, but not too much so that you're. Um, you know, generated fatigue that you don't have time to recover from. But naturally, it's a lot more than what people naturally think. So now it's not uncommon for people to do, you know, even a couple of four or five minute pieces at threshold on a bike before they get on the water or, uh, you know, a couple of three minute pieces on the ergo and then, you know, some maybe even a two or three minute piece at threshold on the water if the waterway allows that before they start even doing some speed stuff. Yeah, exactly right. That's mm. not. I mean, you do see in the boat park, you see people on ergos and watt bikes, and you know, working really working hard. pretty hard. And yeah. funnily enough, I, I worked with a kayaker one time who you know was very good. He you know he held the world record at one point. He was an Olympic medalist, and he said to me he needed a big long warm up to get ready. Yeah. Um, and you know he would joke. He'd say like people would be like, "Is that guy doing a training session? Oh yeah. no, he's coming into the blocks. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's racing us." Um, and you know he found that's what worked for him, mm. and, and um, yeah, I think as you said, people really sort of overestimate the effects of that. I think you, yeah. know, you can recover much more quickly than, than yeah, people think at the time. Oh man, yeah. the, the the caveat to that is there's been successful, very successful top end crews that have done bugger all. You know we've had um, successful crews here. I remember reading. Um, and it was recently highlighted by, by someone, uh, Sam Locke, on Instagram, which is, you know, always a great follow. But he, he highlighted a, an article that I'd read a while ago of uh, Brian Volpenheim, who stroked the American men's eight through um, 2004, where they won. And I think it talked a bit about the warm-up where he identified that what the crew needed to do in the hot weather was hang out under the bridge, I think, in the shade and, and basically do bugger all. But that comes back fundamentally at the end to I think what we've talked about earlier in other episodes is, yes, there's physiological things you need to do, but at the end of the day, the main thing is do enough, but make sure that the athletes are confident when they're ready to mm. race. So there's an element of balance between what's very important. And if you, the more you train it, the, the more confident they are doing it, of course, but also making sure that they've done the stuff that makes them confident before they go. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, as you sort of suggested, the, this, um, you know, the environment might dictate, um, and the circumstances might dictate what you can and can't do in a in a warm up. Yeah. Um, but you know, going going back to doing some of that that work, um, you know, certainly there's some research out there now showing that including intensity in a way that we've discussed can improve mm. performance in the sort of middle distance uh, type events. Um, and also, it's it's important again, as you sort of suggested, that you we've used our race warm up. In for training sessions yeah. so you know if you're going to do a big long threshold session for example we might say all right let's practice our our, our race warm-up beforehand yeah um, to and you know feel like you've done this before familiar. you're doing yeah. a key thing where you need to perform well mm. and so yeah a it's familiar and b it's they start to learn oh actually that didn't tire me out too much it actually made me feel more switched on and ready to go yeah 
which is initially counterintuitive to people. Mm. And yeah, I mean, yeah. usually the first time they do it, they're quite reluctant. Yeah. And, until they sort of start to see the benefits. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, we've covered some ground. We might move on, Rodney, on to having a quick look at a training session. Let's do it. Rightio. So appropriately, we're going to talk about what is a pretty typical session, which is our 2K step rate sessions. So I'm going to explain it from a coaching and athlete point of view, and I'm going to get you to tell me a bit about the physical stuff. So normally we go out and we might do you know, three to five 2K step rates in a session. Uh, typically we would start at early on in the season, you might see people stepping every 500 meters over the course, um, you know, even as low as like 14, 16, 18, 20, and then the next one might be 18, 20, 22, 24 stroke rate and build up. And towards the end of the, the training block, you might be um, starting at 20, 22, 24, 26, and even finishing with a couple where you finish at 32, stepping up, up through the rates. There's also the other approach, which is starting higher and stepping down and then coming back up. So more like what a race profile is like. So you might do 24, 22, 24, 26, something like that. Um, I suppose traditionally we've considered that to be a, you know, a threshold session, but in looking at the numbers, you know, clearly there's limited time in threshold then, uh, depending on how they're doing. Of course, you can row unbelievably hard at 24 or quite light at 24, but generally speaking, athletes won't get into threshold until they get up to high 20s. So um, that sort of changed some of our thinking. But uh, traditionally, that's that has been a session. And, and a part of the reason for doing it is a giving familiarity around the 2K, the race distance, the course, all of that sort of stuff. A chance maybe to go through some race plan and, and those sort of things and also practically because the course is there so it's often an easy thing to do yeah so i mean this is an interesting session for me when i first came into the sport um, a couple of years ago i asked you i mean why do you do it that way mm. um i found it quite interesting coming from working in kayaking beforehand you know the session was labeled this is a threshold session um and so you know in, in kayaking the sessions that we used to do it'd be at a given stroke rate. Yep. So it'd be like, hey, we're doing 10 by 1,000 metres at 40 strokes a minute, and they'll all be at 40, or it'll be at 44, or whatever it might be. Um, and so almost a, a stroke, rate, stroke rate was um, sort of associated with an intensity. Yep. Um, and so I found it interesting, it was a little bit different, that um, you, know, you can say that you know, we're going to do some hard training at 20, Mm. And I was like, oh, 20, I thought that was sort of low-intensity stroke yeah. rate. So um, maybe give us an explanation as to why it, it sort of is important and yeah. you, know, you can obviously do different intensities at a similar stroke rate. Absolutely. Look, I think, number one, doing stuff over the course distance is important for creating familiarity for the athletes. Quite often we'd ask them to go through in their minds the race plan and the race approach. And in fairness, we probably more often do... Now, if we're going to do step rates, we do the one where you start up, come down and come back up again. And that's probably the second point. The skill in the boat of being able to transition speeds and stroke rate, that's a pretty important skill. And it's one that is very fundamental to, to racing. Um, Absolutely. And, and it's sort of coming back to that idea of efficiency and where you're spending yeah. your money. Um, you know, if you haven't mastered that skill, you, you're spending way too much money to change speed. Absolutely, and so so that's that's a big part of it. Is just this, there's some skill of changing up and changing down, but I suppose you know these days we tend to do in in a two K in a session where we're doing two work over two Ks, we might do one or two step rates, but the others will be predominantly at a at a given higher rate, like a twenty eight over the over the course, and and do the same thing, go over the race plan in your mind, maybe start a little faster, and then just try and hold a steady speed. Occasionally, you might put on a step at the back end to practice the mechanics of going up to the line, but but it's still two k familiarity work. I think now doing it uh, at a higher stroke rate has meant we can actually make it a threshold session, which is obvious, but has been important. The other, the other one I think that we probably got to is the most we used to do when we do that, it was four. Now, what, we've, what you challenged us on was a bit around, well, why are the guys doing four and the girls doing four? It doesn't make much sense. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, interesting, we'd look at the, the total training or work time of a session and you might have a, 
a women's lightweight single doing four 2Ks and, mm. and spending you know, 48 min- or 40 minutes worth of, of work. And then you might have a men's pair also mm. do, men's heavyweight pair also do four of them. And it's a significant... 10 minutes less. Yeah, it's about 10 yeah. minutes less of work. So <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, if we want to get an equivalent amount of work done here, mm. um, the guys need to do another one. Yep. And they weren't pleased with that initially. No, they weren't. <laughs> but they, they copped it in the end. And it worked well. It did, yeah. And in the end, I think, you know, we were, one day we turned up and the girls were doing five and the guys were doing six. And I remember Carson Forsling, who's a bronze medalist from London and in our quad at the moment, said to me, God, we've come a long way being so compliant. You've put that up on the board and no one's complained once. What's, going, <laughs> what's wrong with us? Why are we just accepting this now all of a sudden? Oh, I do remember that day. That was a good day. <laughs> it was a good day. Rightio, so the 2K step rate, pretty pretty standard. There's, there's some... Uh, there's some ideas around the ability to build speed and also change stroke rate up and the skills of change stroke rate up and down, particularly in crew boats, which is beneficial. There's the um, ability to do it over the race distance and then and get familiar with that and go over your calls. And it's also a handy kind of threshold distance if you want to do it as a threshold set. But if I really want to do it as a threshold set, how much time between rests, uh, between pieces? Yeah, well, I think that's that's a good point. So ultimately, I think... The session can have a lot of value in a number of different ways that you go mm. about it. it. It could be a technical exercise. It could be, yep. um, you know, a measurement exercise. How fast can we go over at rate 20? How fast can we go at rate 24? Um, or it can be a threshold session if, if that's what you're trying to get out of it. So, again, traditionally the way it has been done is they're done as 2Ks down, paddle back to the start line and, and come back down again, which usually means there's roughly 15 minutes or so mm. between each each session. Uh, each rep and especially if you're starting off at low stroke rates really you're probably not getting to threshold until the last rep of the entire training session so if the goal is you want it to be a threshold session what i would suggest is that a potentially do it at slightly higher rates but then also rather than paddling back to the start line doing them on a turnaround so paddling up and down the course so and you know maybe only giving yourself two to four minutes of break in between each each yeah. rep. And so that'll mean that um, obviously the lactate and the heart rate and the signals you're trying to create are going to be elevated um, mm. by the time you start the next one. So if you start 15 minutes later, everything's sort of coming back down to baseline. Yep. Um, but yeah, if you do it on limited rest, it makes it much more challenging and yep. therefore a better physiological stimulus from that point. Yeah, yeah. And I think... One thing you did touch on there that I probably should have mentioned as the coach in the in the picture here is that it is a good monitoring tool. And if if you're not mo- able to monitor regularly by tracking GPS speeds and that sort of thing, then then quite often the stopwatch over 2K and Stillwater is, is your key tracking point. So probably part of the reason why we can now use it as a threshold session much more than we used to use it as a monitor session is it's much easier for us just to monitor every day on what they're doing so and get a sense of what their paddle speed is and efficiency and what their other speeds are so that's probably why we're more comfortable not using it as a monitored session Mm. well yeah i mean as you said ultimately almost every session is a monitored session if you want to uh, delve deeper into some of the things that you're looking at yeah 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 very good anything else no, I reckon that probably covers it. Very good. Well, we've we've covered some ground again today, Rodney. Um, happy to hear some feedback from anyone out there uh, or shoot through some questions on anything we've discussed. Otherwise, we'll see you shortly for the next one. Over and out.